Do you know what nemesis means? Hello and welcome to Direct, the podcast that takes a direct trajectory through a director's filmography. I'm Eric. I'm Levi. Pan's Labyrinth is the movie we watched this week. Levi, in 30 seconds or less, please give me your review of Pan's Labyrinth. Eric, this is the movie that we've been watching Guillermo del Toro for, and it has stood the test of time. I was Hmm. so glad to go back and watch this. After seeing Devil's Backbone, I thought maybe that would unseat Pan's Labyrinth as my favorite Guillermo movie, but having watched Pan's Labyrinth again, no, this is easily one of my top 10 favorite movies. And wow. Still is. Hardcore. Now, this was my first time watching the movie all the way through. Uh, I think that I had watched like the first 10 or 15 minutes of it, like back when it came out. So, this is my first time watching it all the way through. And I was really blown away with the parallels between this movie and um, and The Devil's Backbone. There's a lot of parallels, and I'm sure we'll get to them. Um, I'm not sure if I'm if I'm willing to say it's my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie. We'll I think we'll see how it shakes out. Really? Um, is yeah. it is it the Devil's Backbone? Is that the competition you think, or are you suspecting potentially Hellboy two? Are you comparing to the <laughs> to his uh, the I other think... side of his his preferences? Well, you know, it's all personal preference here, and I think that, that you can objectively say from a critical perspective that Pan's Labyrinth is probably his best movie. But his best movie and my favorite movie might be two different things. I got you. So uh, I, I'm, I'm almost a little ashamed to say how much I like Hellboy. <laughs> I really liked it. I thought that, like, seriously, it was like, if you're going to make a movie for me, this is pretty much the movie that I want. Yeah, that is the movie striking all of the Eric nerd chords. Yes. So many Eric nerd chords. And so, so much so that this week I went out and bought the uh, first trade oh, for really? Hellboy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to start reading through Hellboy. So oh, that's a really good idea. I really liked I mean, I love this movie, too. Pan's Labyrinth. I, I was very happy because I afforded myself the opportunity. A lot of times for these for this podcast, I watch the movie the morning of the day that I re-record the podcast. So a lot of time, it's not a lot of turnaround between when I watch the movie and when we podcast about it. This one I watched like four days ago. So I've had some time to ruminate on it and think about it. And it's it's an amazing movie. It's really so amazing at how juxtaposed the plots are. You could have this entire movie and not have any of the fantastical elements, and it would still be fairly gripping. Or you could have a movie that was just all of the fantastical stuff. But the way that those two things are so different from one another, and yet are so complementary, is something that I have to take my hat off to Guillermo del Toro. It does, in many ways, feel like this is his opus. It fits everything that he enjoys. The the darkness, uh, the 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 fairy tales of disobedience mm-hmm. disobedience is a good word that i pulled from i put a link in the the bald move forums to it nerd writer has a great summation of the fairy tale of disobedience where he compares pan's labyrinth to uh, disney fairy tales and uh-huh. all of the things that guillermo del toro is capable of doing because of he's not confined to Walt Disney's 1960s anti-Semitic kind of morality. Uh. Well, yeah. And well, and also he, he really loves the dark fairy tale. All of these fairy tales, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, even the three little pigs, like they're pretty dark. And when they get the Disney treatment, they're, you know, they're really painted in a, in a light that's digestible to the widest possible audience. Guillermo del Toro doesn't um, doesn't prescribe himself to that. Well, and these, this is the the original fairy tales were were warnings. Uh, the Hansel and Gretel was, I believe, and I someone could totally write in and say, no, I'm totally off my rocker and digging in the weeds. Uh, but as I understand it, that was during a famine and there were people eating other people and especially children because Whoa. they're the easiest ones to kind of jump. 
Well, and they're delicious. (laughs) So it's a story teaching kids, don't go out in the woods. People will eat you. I'll have the veal. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's really interesting. Don't go in the woods. People will eat you. Yeah. And that's why the woods are always a scary place throughout history. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... But at the same time, to neglect it's the what was it the the journey into the dark woods to find the mm-hmm. the dangerous but life giving. It's the journey into the woods to find the dark but life giving secret. Yeah, and this movie absolutely has that. It's a martyr's oh, yeah. tale. the The dark but life giving secret is death, but the the power of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's beautiful. I really love it. And this movie is the most potent highlight of Guillermo del Toro's line. The the reign of the tyrant ends with his death. The reign of the martyr begins with their death. And uh-huh. this is absolutely... It's just such a good movie. And it's, this is the movie <laughs> that made me aware that the Spanish Civil War was a thing. Oh. The first time I saw this, I was confused as to why there were Nazis in Spain. (laughs) And every time I heard about the Spanish civil war after that, this movie kind of grounded that conversation. I was able to understand the, just how dark it was during that time. And yet the world generally ignored it. Yeah. Except for Hemingway. Yeah. He got involved. He got some Uh and Frenchie. (laughs) <laughs> I assume he was French and that's why they called him Frenchy. Yeah. Uh, it's such an interesting movie. And I mean, we could talk about El Capitan. I think El Capitan has got to be one of the greatest villains ever on screen. The guy is horrifying. And it's funny, man. Cause like we talk about, we, we, we watched all of Quentin Tarantino's movies for this podcast and he gets a lot of flack for violence in his movies. I would, be willing to say that Pan's Labyrinth is one of the most violent movies I've ever seen. Absolutely. The for whatever reason, if you were if you had asked me last week, Levi, what are some of the scenes you remember from Pan's Labyrinth? How much do you recall? Mm-hmm. That bottle scene would have been in my top yeah. 3 recollections. Oh yeah. Because that, I I had seen the mo- that I had seen the movie to that point before oh, on my first watching. Jeez. No yeah. wonder you got out cuz that's a <laughs> That's a hard scene to watch. Yeah, this is, you, I mean, you could see the nose getting smashed down, and then he doesn't die, and he gets shot in the ugh. And then they find the fucking rabbit in the bag. <laughs> I mean, El yeah, Capitan. Yeah, for nothing. Yeah, he's such he's such a he's such a monolithic monster, and uh, Quentin or Quentin uh, Guillermo del Toro constantly says that in his movies the monsters are never the monsters the there are people who are monsters in his movies and the monsters are always sad or weak or something else and yeah man this capitan is like the craziest monster everything about him is just terrifying um and he he the ending is so we talk about revenge stories and we talked about revenge stories a lot with Quentin Tarantino because he paints these really big villains, but then they get killed at the end and it never quite rings a hundred percent right for me as the viewer, just because, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino has the idea that everybody in the movie is a bad person. So it's all just bad people killing each other. Guillermo del Toro achieves a righteousness with his revenge stories where at the end of this, when Capitan gets shot in the face and <laughs> and right before he dies, the resistance guerrillas tell him that uh, his son will not even know his name. And the look on his face, like the one thing that he was that he was, you know, going toward his one goal in life is completely erased. And there's a righteousness in that probably mostly because he just killed a tiny child um, in cold blood. Uh, there's just this him as a villain is he's a terrifying guy it's you're right in the sense that death has always been the defeat in these revenge stories and we've seen a lot of revenge stories at this point yep but this is the first one where they struck the villain had something to lose and they Mm. took it from him 
just right before they, it is, it's a beautiful finish to the, <laughs> to the story. And I've never felt for all the times I've seen the movie, Ophelia's death for whatever reason, while tragic, the, the fairy tale ending yeah. always makes it beautiful. I'm all, I'm, it's the death of a child, but somehow it doesn't strike me so hard because of yeah. that that final moment. You know, whether she is, um, you know, whether it's how what actually happens. You know that the, this mystical reality that coexists is true, and she enters it, or it's how she ends her own story to herself. Either way, that's powerful that's a powerful final moment i don't want to call it death it's a final moment yeah i you gotta love the uh the federico lupi uh cameo yeah. at the end of the movie he's the del toro really like. <laughs> yeah he's the del toro is a spanish language film he was in chronos he was in devil's backboat and he's in pan's labyrinth i thought that was really cool so let me ask you the question levi the question that's on everybody's mind yeah. Is the fairy tale world real or not? I choose to accept it as real because there's enough unanswered questions and I and hmm. I am so willing to believe it. And some of it's because I and maybe it's a lot of it's probably stolen from Unbreakable, but the notion that st- these stories that we tell, fantastic stories, have a basis in reality. They're based on something. Mm-hmm. And so I I believe that there is a, a semblance of reality in them. Whether it's truly the the practical effects that we we see, you know, that it's to that degree, I don't know. But for Ophelia's story, yes, I believe that it is meant that, that universe exists for sure. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I I would I would tend to disagree with that, um, just because of the final scene when Capitan comes into the labyrinth and uh, he sees Ophelia with the baby talking to the um, fawn and the fawn is not there. Yes, but you're seeing the story from his viewpoint. He's mm-hmm. drugged. He's an unreliable narrator in that moment. <laughs> I don't know if the drugging would make the thing disappear. I mean, you could say you could have the argument that you know these magical creatures only reveal themselves to, uh, they only reveal themselves to worthy people or something like that. But I think the fact that a lot of Ophelia's or all of Ophelia's um, exploits are occur during nighttime, you know, when she goes into the really creepy <laughs> banquet hall. <laughs> That's at night. Uh, her first one when she... Oh, I guess when she goes and retrieves a toad, that's not at night. Hmm. No, she goes into the big womb tree. Yeah. It, it's just the only thing that I think translates into the real world is the book. And so she could have found the book somewhere. A big blank and, book? Yeah, the big blank book. Because I, th- I feel like that book... Uh, it exists outside of like I feel like other people see it or interact with it or something. Although I'm not 100 percent sure because she does go in to take her bath and it's like hiding behind the radiator. So I mean, the only thing that people interact with is that is the uh, the little fetish, the little totem guy who's made out of the root the mandrake. Yeah, um, but even that could she could have just gone and found that in the woods. And come up with it herself. Here's the question. Mm-hmm. If if we're going to play this game, w- is it reality or not? How does she escape her room if not for the chalk doors? Because she tries the, the mm. door. It is locked. I think this is similar to Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. That's the moment. And I, I think Guillermo del Toro actively does this. He leaves just these moments that yeah. make you question. Well, he invites it because 
because of the scene where Capitan goes in and we see his POV and he doesn't see the fawn. Yeah. I feel like he invites this conversation to occur because it could be her way of escaping this horrific, horrific environment that she's found herself in. Her mother is almost, uh, I mean, she's not murdered, but, but she dies in childbirth and nobody cares about her, you know? Um, she, so she witnesses the death of her mother and becomes an orphan ultimately um, because she knows that Capitan is never going to love her as a daughter and she's uh, for sure never going to love him as a father. So she witnesses the death of her parents and uh, and on top of that, all of this other shit that's going on that she's witnessing, it could just be an escapism for her. Yeah. Well, and I think the the sad truth to the movie is that her younger brother all suffers the same fate. Ophelia has no father. Right. Her mother turns to what she sees as the safe option, which is the the Captain uh, Vidal. And her brother is taken to what seems like the safe option at the time. But he's still in a war-torn country with with rebels, yep. at the, with gorillas at this point. Like, his life And is he's an no, orphan. Yeah. It's really tragic like because they're still in the same place despite you know having won the battle in a sense yeah how long was the spanish civil war well franco ruled for 30 years at least i mean it happened essentially at the same time as world war ii it started they and i think this movie actually takes place after the war is over so if you read Homage mm. to Catalonia after Franco's side, and I, the problem is it's similar to 1984. Both sides have a narrative that is, you know, nation based. You know, this is yeah. as we are fighting for the nation, and so I can never remember which side. <laughs> and that's, I mean, part of the point. Uh, to I think to this movie is that they talk about. Uh, at the start of the movie, when they're driving out to see the captain and Ophelia's mother is telling her, you, you need to call him father. And she's kind of fighting her mom, saying she doesn't want to do it. And her mom's saying, it's just words. But that entire war, the moral uh-huh. high ground was fought with words in the sense that they both tried to co-op the, the heart of the country to prove, to, mm-hmm. to make their case. I mean, it's, it was a long time, and there, people that were old enough to be, you know, people born in the '60s in Spain still know that, you know, there's still a little bit of an echo. Yeah, it's well. The only reason I ask, and I don't, th- it doesn't line up, but it's kind of an interesting way to look at this movie, Pan's Labyrinth, and The Devil's Backbone, and think that. Uh, little Carlos from the Devil's Backbone oh, could be no. the baby from this movie because <laughs> he's an orphan. He goes to an orphanage. Oh no! It's the Del Toro universe. Yeah. Although I, they, I don't think the timelines line up. In fact, I think that Pan's Labyrinth probably takes place after the Devil's Backbone, and then it all leads up to this is in the same universe as Hellboy. So Hellboy's discovered mm-hmm. also about this time. He's a kid. Yep, orphan again. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Hellboy is an orphan from this time period. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I I definitely want to learn a little bit more about the Spanish Civil War based on these based on these movies. Um but I think, you know, for me, I I think I choose to believe that Ophelia is imagining all of this and it's her way to escape the horif- the horrifying um the horrific nature of what's going on here because she goes into uncanny places i mean when she climbs under that tree she like goes into this deep dark tunnel um i don't know it's just i i i think i choose to believe that it's that it's in her mind and then that final scene when she gets christened as princess and sits on the throne that's just her final synapses firing before she checks out and it was so weird to me because ophelia's death um on the first viewing it was very shocking to me. I did not think that she was going to die. In fact, I thought that there were, weren't going to be any dead kids in this movie. But <laughs> there's a couple. She died, man. Yeah. Well, I think there's only one. Oh no, I'm trying to. 
I think Ophelia is the only dead kid. There aren't any other kids in the movie. You know what? It's baby. When the Capitan crushes the Mandrake, I, mm-hmm. you know, on rewatching this, I couldn't remember exactly what had happened and whether or not her brother lives. And I thought in my head, I'm like, oh, oh. he just killed his own child. Smooth move. I forgot that it just kills the mom. Yeah, I think that that, but I think that goes along with what you were saying. I think that that correlates because he throws the mandrake into the fire, and then that causes the fate. That causes, or you know, in the story, it causes the fatal birth for her mother. So I think that that's a point for the fairy tale world being real. I don't know. I I just think it's interesting to think about it and look at it both ways because there's nothing that really confirms or denies it. So it's I I do think it's left open ended. And that's that's when Del Toro operates at his best, I think. And that's mm-hmm. probably where I feel that this has a leg up on Devil's Backbone is Devil's Backbone and it's not like Devil's Backbone was intentionally trying to question like you see the ghost pretty much out of the gate. Um mm-hmm. but for whatever reason this story walks the line a little yeah. bit better, and I don't know what makes me say that. I maybe it's just well, the it does... fantasy of this. You know, a ghost. There's not a world built around the ghost, but there's a world built around the labyrinth and the fawn and the woods around the yeah the headquarters. That just I find that more. You know, there's no environment really to Devil's Backbone. There's the the orphanage, obviously, mm. but but it's not. It just doesn't feel as pervasive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the thing that really shook me too about this is that when a, when Ophelia's death, it was such a surprise to me, and until I remembered that the movie starts with her dead. Yeah, <laughs> it starts with her laying down, ble- bleeding out of her nose, and I'm like, why didn't I freaking remember that? Because <laughs> it was shocking to me, and it starts and ends the same way in, in in a lot of ways that Devil's Backbone starts. It starts with the death of the kid. And then we slowly realize or figure out how the kid actually died. Um, so this movie in a lot of ways is like a direct sister movie to Devil's Backbone. And I think watching both of them, they really do inform each other really well. Um, let's... Uh, Oh, I want to talk about quiet bravery because there's there's two scenes, one's in Devil's Backbone and one's in Pan's Labyrinth, and they're nearly identical in theme. And in Devil's Backbone, I talked about it. It's this moment of quiet bravery um, when what, what's his name here? Jacinto, who's the bad guy, and Cochita, who is his uh, Conchita, who's his uh, girlfriend. Mm. She like stands up to him in the middle of the desert. She's walking into town to try to go get help, and they, and he cuts her off, cuts her off at the pass, and she refuses to go with him. And he says, "You know, come with me." He's like, "You don't want to make me mad," and she's like, "I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of you." And then he kills her, and it's this moment of quiet bravery. It's really, really poignant, and it the almost exact same thing happens in this movie when the doctor stands up to Capitan, like. He knows that he's signing his own death warrant um, by standing up to El Capitan and just a great line when he tells him, uh, I can't follow orders blindly. Only a man like you can do that. And it's just like, wow. Uh, and he knew he knew that that was the end. Um, but he also knew that he, w- he wasn't going to go in there and fix that kid up so that he could be further tortured. Um, that's, that's just not something that he's going to do. These moments of really quiet bravery, I feel like are poignant. And I feel like it's something that Del Toro goes back to time and time again, because they are so affecting. They really affected me. They really, they do that too in uh, mimic when the cop takes the march Hmm. Mm -hmm. to get the bugs to chase him. Beautiful, beautiful Mm -hmm. moment in mimic. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's your, that's a cool catch. I did not. Pick up as soon as you started talking about uh, Kochita walk, walking to town. I realized where you're going, and yeah. it's a it's a beautiful moment. I agree that that quiet courage because you that's those moments that as a viewer you like. Can I do that? Can I be? Could I be that? 
you'd like to think that you would be that brave to do the right thing despite it being your own death. And that's the that's the choice. It's all that's it is his. That's Guillermo del Toro's favorite thing, and I mm-hmm. have really liked that we, that came up so early and being able to see it because it's not only choice, but it's choosing disobedience in a way yeah. that is moral. Well, it, it strips power away from these guys. I mean, sure, it costs you your life. But you are revoking power from these megalomaniacal, awful, villainous people, and all that they want is power because because it helps make up for their own insecurities. And so you strip them of that. You are ultimately stripping them of their power. And even though it costs you your life, you've taken away their power from you, their power over you. There's something that's really, really strong about that. And it is. It's almost a challenge. When you see it on film, you, you have to ask yourself, would I be willing to do that? And the doctor in this movie, he he has to because he, he, he had gotten to the point where if he were to patch up the kid to let him be tortured more, um, he would be complicit in the torture himself. So he needs to make the decision, you know, Will I be? Will I use my cover up here to be more to to actually become an accessory to uh, the crimes of this man, or will I stand up and and uh, and and not do that? So that choice is really strong. Im- immortality and this movie. Uh, one, the beautiful cam, the beautiful transitions from Ophelia telling a story to her baby brother as mm-hmm. the camera transitions down into the womb and then over to yeah. the mountain on the thorns and then up to the moon and then back into the room with her and her mom yeah. sleeping. Beautiful, beautiful moment. And there's a, there are moments like it throughout. Um, that one just strikes me as my favorite because we get a couple times where we get the story in this movie. You know, we, a lot of Del Toro movies start with a story, but this one kind of sneaks them in throughout in a really yeah. great way. Uh, starting with the girl whose spirit escapes and is, you know, outside of the underground kingdom. But this, we get the mountain with the fa- the rose on top with the thorns that kill. And then we, it goes straight to the captain right afterwards with him and his watch fixing his watch and just that notion of time and his it's the immortality through lineage Mm -hmm. and they take that from him in the end oh it's so good (laughs) um but immortal well and also like that story itself is the dark but life i mean that's like the classic story of the dark but life-giving secret this flower of immortality surrounded by deadly poison thorns you know that is the that is the dark but life-giving secret in incarnate it with all of del toro's use of immortality in his stories is it just the easiest dark but life-giving secret that's really interesting we haven't talked about that very much but really immortality is like a big part of of his stories. Oh yeah. Hellboy. Uh, yeah. Rasputin. Rasputin was absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, devil's mm-hmm. backbone. It wasn't immortality, it, it, but it is a form of immortality. The there's the ghosts. I mean, these wandering ghosts around the orphanage, that's a form of immortality for sure. Kronos was absolutely, I mean, that was yeah. blatant. Kronos is a hundred percent about, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing to go back to. Um, that, that, that theme of immortality. And yeah, I was also thinking about how these things lined up because um, like, so the quests that Ophelia has to go on in order to fulfill her destiny as the princess. uh, The first one she has to, um, the way that they correlate to the story is interesting. So the first one, you know, she has to go give the toad, the three rocks and then get the key from its belly. And that correlates in the story to, um, I'm forgetting her name now. Who's the Mercedes? Uh, Mercedes getting the key to the cellar for 
the captain. And then there's the second one, which is, um, you know, retrieving the knife. And there's like Ophelia who like, you know, keeps that knife in her apron, um, which she eventually stabs the captain with. Um, so there are some correlations between these things. Well, and even in the, I think, even in the end, the final task is to kill the baby so that, or well, to take blood from the baby so that she might mm-hmm. live. And in reality, she takes her blood so that yeah. the baby can live. And that's where the stories kind of, that's where they, they pass each other. And yeah, and both continue. The boy lives and in her death, in her own story, she lives on below because she, by not pricking the baby, she actually passed the test. So you think that she actually does make it into the other realm? Then? I like to think so. I mean, it's happier. Oh, absolutely. Here's a fun one. So I watched. Yep. Since we're on, since we're talking about this final scene, um, uh-huh. I watched with Liz and. For the listeners, my wife uh, teaches dual language, so she works with kids that speak English and Spanish, and they do a lot of dual language back and forth. So it was fun to watch with her, and she's fluent in Spanish. So we get, so I got some uh, differences in her translation versus what they put as the subtitles. And the Uh best part is at the end when the fawn is saying, "You," when she's arguing to not prick the baby and she's saying i would not and i i you know i wouldn't the actual spanish is uh she says that she would she would sacrifice they use much stronger words i refuse so it's not these kind of conditionals to the fawn they're very hard Mm -hmm. strong words about she is forsaking her her this happy ending for the child huh. and it's i'm one i'm kind of interested because Guillermo del toro is a fluent speaker so i wonder right. how you know the like because the movie kind of comes subtitled it's not like we're putting english subtitles on a movie that was not intended for an american audience right it really was kind of written this way um but it was something that i thought was really kind of a bummer because it makes her hmm. a much more active protagonist in the end that she is fully understanding of what she is giving up and sacrificing. Yeah. And she, and that refusal correlates because she uh, disobeyed the fawn uh, in her second quest. So she has that ultimate understanding that refusing this will bar her from fulfilling her destiny. Even though it doesn't, it's actually the exact opposite. Well, and again, the disobedience, her, you know, so much of this, and this is what I kind of talked with Rasputin, you know, his understanding of fate. Everything seems so, the way people speak seems so certain, especially villains in uh, in Pan's Labyrinth, that disobedience is... Um, it's unexpected and they're caught off guard when they run, when the, the fascistas run down Mercedes, you know, they're threatening her about taking her back and they're like, Oh, well we'll beat the hell out of you. We're totally fine with that option too. They, the shock that they gorilla show up is so apparent. And that's the, and it's in some ways kind of suicidal by the gorillas to, be attacking this place i don't think so they they were had them completely outnumbered i mean they talk about that they said they had at least 50 gorillas and there were like 20 dudes left (laughs) at the house so i mean they were going to call in reinforcements for sure and i think there's a long-term loss to that battle but in that you know six guys on horses i feel like they could take them yeah i just and they did but they this element of surprise their timing you know was really yeah. a surprise they caught him split i think it was fortuitous as much as anything i don't know what their overall strategy was especially since they had just had their uh secrets given up i don't know anyways i think that there's just a, a fatalism 
that villains tend to take on in del toro's movies because hmm. his heroes are the ones making the choices yeah i mean that's it's one thing about this is that capitan is a really amazing villain uh and he you know goes down in my mind as one of the greatest cinema villains of all time he's just so awful he's such an insane crazy monster but at the same time he's very one-dimensional like he's so easy to read because you're right he doesn't make choices you know exactly what he's going to do at all times you know what the consequences of your actions are going to be as you interact with him he's very black and white um so in that respect he's very evil and he's very he's this big foreboding force but he's not very deep i think as a character He's very one-dimensional as a character, and then that allows those other characters, the uh, you know our heroes and the people we root for, it allows them to seem much more human because they have a depth of character that it, that the villains don't have. So, I just I I'm the more I think about this movie, the more I love it. But after, right after I watched it, I was like, this it's a, obviously a really good movie. Um, I just have a little bit of an issue, I think, with the fairy tale elements and how <laughs> different they are from the seriousness of the rest of the narrative. I don't know. It's not. It's good because it takes you out of it. Because otherwise, it would just be this dreary, awful story. But at the same time, I both marvel at it because it works so well. But at the same time, I'm like, they're so they're so different that it borders on almost gimmicky having these really fantastical elements to me. Um, but also just amazing visuals that you have never seen on film before. Um, it's the, the the practical effects that are used in this and the style that Guillermo del Toro uses, are, it really is striking and amazing. I wonder, and this would be, you know, if you ever get five minutes with Guillermo del Toro, something to ask him, Yeah, is the the correlation between fairy tale and the harsh reality of this setting is the relationship that it's a fairy tale that the capitan lives in he has this Mm -hmm. if you think about the the his father had a watch that he broke in a final moment of badassness saying (laughs) let my son know this is how a real a real dude dies which is clearly haunted him in a way that I think Ophelia that uh, you know she manages a lot of emotional stress through these fairy tales um yeah. and he is I think built up his father and then how he's going to follow in his footsteps mm-hmm. and if you think about the story these were all people from the same country and very much yeah. the same lifestyles in a lot of sense the fact that they have developed this schism and turned on each other is in it it's all because of a story they are telling themselves that they are Hmm. different is it commentary i've never seen anything brought up and so i don't know if this is just my you know if i'm reaching and i'd love to know if that's really guillermo del toro's kind of deeper grasp of why why he likes to put Something as, uh, you know, horrific as the Spanish Civil War together with the fantastical because, hmm. you know, is it that's the power of stories that it has motivated people to some shockingly horrific things. Yeah, absolutely. You have to you have to convince yourself that you're in the right and that what you're doing is when you're murdering all these people, you're doing it righteously. And they don't see the fawn telling you, yeah, totally cool, murder yeah. these people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a uh, there's just a lot of cool things. I want to get into some of the story elements of this thing too, because I think this goes along with your with what you're talking about. Like uh, after the second encounter, when she goes into the hall and there's a the really creepy dude with the eyeballs in his hands, pale man. the pale man who's terrifying, um, but also is kind of a bumbling fool. <laughs> It's one of the bad things about having your eyes in your hands is that you can't really grab something and look at it at the same time. <laughs> but he's just terrifying, and the, car- the creature design on him is so amazing. 
Um, but after that, she, you know, emerges from the little door that she's drawn in the floor and she kind of slams it behind her. And then you can hear the, the pale man kind of clawing on the floorboards. And I think it's a really cool thing. It's, it's these stories that we could tell ourselves, right? So to her, we mentioned earlier in the story, her mom tells her that the house is old and it creaks and it makes noises. And I feel like this was like a subtle explanation for the noises in the house is that there are monsters from other dimensions shambling around between the floorboards. And it adds like an extra layer of narrative to the mundane. It 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 provides a fantastical explanation to the mundane. It's not the house settling. It's these creepy monsters on on, on you know at every turn. This is my um, next house is gonna creak like crazy <laughs> just so I can spook my kids. Just like I'm like, mm, might be a pale man <laughs> down there. Got yeah, his hands I and mean, his eyeballs in his hands. <laughs> Yeah, when do you, when do you? I mean, this movie's rated R. I can't imagine showing this to kids. This would be just because the violence alone. This would. I have a deep seated fear of aliens in the woods because I saw Fire in the Sky when I was like six. Uh-huh. <laughs> it still sticks to me, and I won't watch that movie on <laughs> like if I see it on HBO or Netflix. Uh, can't do it. Can't bring. I get chills up and down my spine so this movie would my kid would not sleep for a month to to begin yeah. with and he's already not a good sleeper i can't <laughs> imagine just like oh man no way oh, even just even if you took out the bottle this the character design is so spooky and then yeah. add in the the kids have enough of an imagination Tie actively tying their imagination to reality. <laughs> yep. Can I mean maybe my kid's the next Guillermo del Toro because he always <laughs> argues that this is his things that you know he saw a ghost when he was a kid and he said be my friends and let me go to sleep and I'll be f- your friend forever. That you know that pops up in multiple interviews that I've seen. With Wait, him. what? Have you not seen this? This is no. his whole explanation for why he's creepy. And into the occult because when he was okay, a so kid, say it again. there were ghosts yeah. in his room, ghosts or monsters, and they were keeping him up. And he said, "Let me sleep, and I'll be your friends forever." And he's like, "They're quiet." That's his thing. <laughs> this is also a man that we've seen do the Muppet yeah. and make a drink in another man's mouth by shaking his head violently. So <laughs> the Muppet, <laughs> the Muppet drink. If you want to see that, Google Gabriel del Toro Muppet video uh, it's weird <laughs> it is really weird <laughs> it sounds like some kind of creepy pasta um so yeah other things of this that correlate too i mean just having a doctor as an intellectual in each of these movies in devil's backbone and pan's labyrinth is interesting to me and in both instances they're uh they're kind of playing both sides even though they're more loyal to the gorillas or the uh you know the opposition and, force and in both cases so that was interesting. they question their own bravery until the end yeah yeah although dude i love that scene i know i know we're talking about pan's Labyrinth, but i love the scene in devil's backbone when the doctor posts himself up above the entrance to the <laughs> orphanage with the shotgun cuz it is like the it's such like an old western type of premise of the old timer up in the crow's nest with the shotgun waiting for the bad guys to get to roll back into town thought that was interesting um also the stutterer i thought that it, it was so effective to use the stutterer um as the torture victim for like a couple of reasons uh one it allows us to identify who he is really easily because when they originally captured him i thought that that was mercedes brother like, I didn't have a great handle on who was who with the guerrilla fighters. But because they had him stuttering back when they were in the guerrilla encampment, then you then you were able to easily identify who he is out of the guerrilla fighters. And it also gives you a ton of sympathy for him. Because not only, um, you know, not only does he have the speech impediment, but at the same time, Capitan ridicules him for it. And really cruelly... Um, uses it against him in this as a form of psychological torture before the physical torture sets in. So I thought the use of that character was really interesting. 
Um, and also, man, oh, what they did to his arm. It's just like that. the makeup effects on that were just, ugh. Well, if you can make the pale man, you can make a guy look like he's been tortured. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, the, that's what I'm saying about this. Like, you could talk about Tarantino being a violent director. Tarantino, like, puts a lot of blood in his movies, but this movie is like the actual epitome of violence on film in so many ways. Like his arm was all mangled and broken and, uh, yeah, awful. Well, and that's the contrast between because all of a Tarantino movie is com is a comic essentially, mm-hmm. but this, yeah. but Guillermo del Toro he divides his reality and his fan- fantasy, and you can in some ways discern which side you're on based on those kind of effects. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's, he uses it as a sobering element, which is, uh, effective. It's also horrific. Like when he tells the doctor to kill him, he's just like, kill me. It's like, Jesus, (laughs) this is hopeless. Yeah. How bad of a spot you gotta be in to turn to. Yeah. Although that shot full of morphine, that's, uh, one of the, it's a good way to go. to go. Yeah, especially if after you've been in nothing but pain for the last however long hours, I assume. Oh man, <laughs> awful. Um. Okay, then we get a feel, or then we get Mercedes. She is about to suffer the same fate, but she has the knife. And oh man, she had him in the palm of her hand. <laughs> Like, she had him all sliced up. She sliced open his mouth, which was another incredibly violent thing. And then she did... But she didn't finish him off. Like, he's got the hammer sitting on the table. She was just would have grabbed the hammer and smacked him in the head. It all would have been over. Um, but... Yeah. But is she... I'm she trying to think. Did she kill... She doesn't kill anybody else, does she? Is she just no. incapable? Well, does she... She's not the one who shoots him. No, her, her brother does, does it. She's holding the baby. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, man, but like she's she's got it in her to slice the man to to jokerify <laughs> the guy's face. I mean, there's nothing that's going to kill him by doing that. It's just inflicting pain. So, maybe this is the origin story for the Joker. It definitely has a Joker vibe to it. Now we know how he got the scars. Why so serious? Yeah. Um, all I'm saying is if she would have just picked up the hammer and smacked him in the head, she had him where he, where she want, where she needed him. Um, yeah, there's just so many things though. I love, I love how Ophelia goes in and poisons his drink and the scene of him. Oh, the scene of him sewing up his cheek and the, him drinking the drink and becoming drugged. And then we go into this shining moment where he's chasing her through the maze at the end, which is very much. Very reminiscent to me of the ending of The Shining, um, where you have like the crazy guy stumbling through the maze, chasing after the child. Um, and I guess it it also lends itself to to having this fairy tale place be real. Is when we see the maze open up, and then she gets to run into the center of the labyrinth, and then it closes up behind her. Again, though, the if this is. So here's something I was poking through my notes looking for other moments of the captain. Am do you agree with the notion that the reality portion of the movie is almost entirely told through the perspective of El Capitan and really then the fan when the mm. fantasy interweaves that is when we have ophelia as the direct protagonist because if you consider Mm -hmm. especially with the perspective of the torture um the captain chasing ophelia at the end before she gets to the fawn um yeah and when he is drugged that's when he begins to interact with the labyrinth opening and closing around him and then we see her uh. looking at the fawn but him not seeing the fawn that's when their realities kind of collide yeah is he the is he the perspective of the story when we're in reality 
I don't know. I mean, he is the dominant force throughout. Maybe just but dominant we also go like is the, the yeah for it. But it's something I'd love to go I, back and watch it again for because I didn't pick mm. it up until the end when he was sewing his lip shut. Which movies yeah. you don't have to show me somebody giving themselves stitches. <laughs> I good lord, that's. I feel like they just you know the creature shop, Guillermo del Toro's creature shop. Is just really stoked with all of the practical effects that they've created. <laughs> they just want to show them off. And to them, they're like, oh, yeah, it's just a really cool practical effect. Like, look how we did this thing. And to us, we're all horrified. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Because, like, you know, we go off into the woods with the gorillas and stuff as well. Um. I did think it was interesting, like, when Capitan goes into battle, he's pretty cowardly. Like, he basically just hides behind the tree until all of the guys are shot. Um, And he's, like, telling other people, go, run in there, there's no better way to die. And yet he's, like, hiding behind a tree, (laughs) just waiting for everybody else to get shot. Um, Yeah. (sighs) There's just so many things about this movie that build him up as such a giant villain, and I think that's why the movie is so effective is because of the villainy of Capitan. He is. And I think that's the big takeaway. You know, that's one of the points that I was reading about the next Kingsman movie, and the writers, Mm. their real concern about a sequel was, could they top Samuel Jackson as a villain? Because the speech (laughs) between Colin Farrell and Samuel Jackson about the best part of the old Bond, you know, what was the best part of the old spy movies? And it was, and Colin Farrell's arguing that it's the villain is what makes the movie. Colin Firth. Firth, sorry. Um, and I, I think they're correct. I, Ophelia's yeah. adventures are fun, but the terror of her villain is real yeah. the entire time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's so imposing and you just cannot cross the man. It's, it's really rather terrifying. Um, and I also want to talk about, though, I, I want to talk about these effects because the Fawn is one of the most impressive practical effects that I've ever seen in a movie. And I love that they, you know, they use CGI quite a bit in this movie. Um, and it do, I, I don't think the CGI really holds up. I mean, this movie is this movie's 10 years old now. Um, it came out in 2006. So that's to be expected, but the practical effects are just amazing, and the fawn itself is so cool. And I love that he. I know. I know it's a Spanish language film, but I just think it's really cool to see those kind of practical effects, and then the character not speaking English because we're so used to um, to seeing those kinds of effects in, like you know, American films. I, I mean, we're obviously biased because we primarily watch English language films, but it's just, it was just so cool, like so unique. And then the, you know, this being a Spanish language film makes it even more unique. Um, I really just thought that that creature design was amazing. That's that's our man, Doug Jones. Abe, Abe the fish man makes his return. Oh, yeah. Was he, was he also the, he's also, the, yeah, he also does man? the pale man. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't speak Spanish. I don't remember where I read that. No. But it's kind of cool that you're taking the fawn, which is this otherworldly creature and, you know, I didn't really suss from Liz about this, but I would suspect that his, because he's not a native Spanish speaker, he probably sounds weird. Mm-hmm. It probably sounds like an odd creature speaking Spanish. Well, I'm guessing that they overdubbed him with an actual Spanish language speaker. I, hmm, that'd be because, something for research. Yeah. I uh, Because his it didn't really line up. His lips, I mean, there were some things, I, I don't know. It didn't super line up to me. I I, I I got the feeling that it was overdubbed. Um, but yeah, Doug Jones, man, this guy is really really cool, and I'm excited to see him again in Hellboy, uh, Hellboy Two, because he actually does get to speak in that one. Um, speaking of Hellboy, dude, the portal is like almost the exact same as the as the portal in Hellboy. There is a lot of rune porn. Is what I would call yeah. it, Del Toro stuff. He loves decrepit buildings. And I don't blame him. I think most people get a huge kick. There are tumblers dedicated to that stuff. Uh, uh-huh. And there's a lot of architectural theory 
that I've come across kind of based around mm-hmm. the notion of what is this building when it no longer serves its given purpose. Those are the most interesting yeah. structures. And, you know, we grew up in the Pacific Northwest in like Fort Warden, which is an old mm, military yep. coastal fort that is totally a ruin, was my favorite place as a child. I yeah. love those. I love going back there. Being in those weird, dark spaces. But that portal is just, and the structure around it and the the... You know, the object that kicks off the movie, the statue with the eyeball missing, uh, Mm -hmm. just something about all that. And maybe it's just my video game brain gets me so (laughs) excited. Yeah, well, there's some really interesting uh, stuff that Del Toro talked about. Davey Mack on the forums posted uh, about a a featurette that's on the Blu-ray for this movie. Um, And uh, there's something around the eyes and seeing through other people's eyes. So, so like one of the things is, um, let's see here. Uh, he says he talks about a ton of other stuff, including the fauna as a character, how Ophelia placing the stone eye into the statue at the beginning of the movie opens her eyes to the alternate reality. And then closing with the blooming flower while the narrator talks about seeing evidence of her beyond the world. If you know where to look, Plus, you've got the monster with eyes in his hands. There's a lot of stuff related to sight and eyes. So that's a really interesting thing here is that maybe Ophelia unlocked this world for herself because she put that eye at, in the statue at the beginning. Um, that's an interesting take. And it also pers- it, it helps uh, give credence to the theory that this is all actually happening. Uh, but you would have to put the that eye into the statue in order to actually see it. Oh, I really put some mythology behind it. And more to your point, the fact that the bug, she first refers to the bug as a fairy to the point where eventually it looks like a fairy to her is very much Uh the, this is Ophelia bending her own reality to cope Mm -hmm. because we watch the transition happen. We watch her tell herself enough times that this is a fairy until she sees it. Yeah, and it and it morphs right in front of her eyes. Yeah, um, because I, I just feel like that bug. If I saw that bug in real life, I would freak out. I have that's a huge. I have bug. seen a bug very similar to that, and I did freak out. <laughs> Those things can be like small <laughs> dinosaurs. It's like a mantis, right? But it's not quite a I mantis. I don't know what kind of bug it is, man. When I saw it, I, was, <laughs> I just backed away slowly. I mean, the, that's the thing, too, about this movie is that I feel like we kind of get a glimpse into Del Toro a little bit as well. You know, we do know that Del Toro has a fascination with insects, and it gets recurred over and over again. It was in Kronos. It's in Mimic. Uh, it's in Devil's Backbone. Uh, they, you know, the kids c- collect slugs. Um, and it's in this one as well. Maybe he sees bugs as these kind of fantastical creatures. Because they really, like, I've thought about this before. Like, bugs probably have little to no awareness of human beings because <laughs> of the way that they sense the world and the things that they do. They basically live in a completely different world than us. And every once in a while, we interact with them and, you know, step on them or smush them in the Kleenex and th- flush them down <laughs> the toilet or whatever. But I don't think that those are seen as, like, potent and imminent threats to them because they don't it's not like they can even register that they just are in their little hive mind and carry out their duties throughout the day so they're almost they almost are mystical creatures because they live in a world so separated from ours Uh, and yet they're right there with the most alien in terms of how Mm -hmm. we you know we anthropomorphize dogs and cats yeah but a bug is just it's not a, a dog you can imagine okay a I, the only thing I really think about is food. That's what, yeah. as far as I can tell, that's all my dog seems to care about. Yeah, but dogs like like to be around people. Like dogs are aware of people, and same thing. A lot of I think a lot of mammals are like aware of people and have a context for people in the world. I feel like insects just live in a world among world live in a world to their own and while we seem to care a lot about them i don't think that they give a fuck about us (laughs) and it is it's kind of an interesting parallel when you look at pan's labyrinth and through that lens because it is this world that is 
that is not only um, running in parallel to our world, but it's actually integrated into our world, and yet it's two completely different worlds, um, you know, functioning together, and then you can kind of cross over in between them at certain points. I mean, I had a crane fly trapped in my house for like three days. I don't think it gave a shit about me. Did you? But I was sure. I was sure thinking about the crane. I fly. know you asked a bunch of us what yeah. to do about it. Well, because I felt I didn't want to kill so, it because so you just let him chill. He just Netflixed and chilled at your house. We actually named we named her. <laughs> we named her Julia. Yeah. And yeah, she's just chilling in the house and. Because there was like a creepy factor, because crane flies are kind of big, but they're completely benign. They don't bite you. There's nothing that they can really do except just be creepy. Um, and they're big. And I was a little afraid that it would like, I would accidentally inhale it while I was sleeping or something. <laughs> Which one night, Julia was on the nightstand right next to my bed, like as I turned on my phone. And I was like, Julia, I'm going to eat you if you're here. <laughs> anyway. Julia's floating around for a few days and I make the decision that I'm not going to kill it because it's not going to hurt me at all. And then uh, my wife accidentally rolled over it with the foam roller <laughs> and, uh, and Julia was no more. This has been a anyway, great story. That's the story of Julia. <laughs> well, that's my own little fairy that floated around my house. For Meanwhile, a few Julia was imagining herself in a magical kingdom. Where she had to complete three quests. One of which was hang out on your nightstand yeah what a, it took place on my her night soul stand. was released when she was rolled over <laughs> yeah all right well i'm really excited for next week we're gonna get to watch the next hellboy installment yeah. and i'm also just really excited to see it in context to not only hellboy but to this movie as well um so listener please uh be a part of it go on the forums forums.ballmove.com there'll be a forum there for hellboy too be a part of the conversation or you can send us an email direct podcast at gmail.com and until next time i'm eric i'm levi cut <laughs>